So just one other sidebar on the retreat. Um, uh, Andrea has laid down a standing gauntlet to play and beat anybody in cribbage. So um, she's the one to be beat. But I have uh, made sure we have cribbage boards there. So if you uh, are from like the 1920s, uh, we can accommodate you. Um, I make that joke knowing that I love cribbage. Um, and, and, and also in my childhood, I was raised on cribbage, and it was raised on Disney movies. And so I'm excited to have reached a stage in my life where I get to relive all of my favorite Disney movies with my son. Um, and as Owen's watching the Disney Channel the other day, Sarah made a comment, like, there's this really weird song that came on as a commercial. Um, and I was like, that's, Disney's weird sometimes. And the song, uh, I heard it the other day, and, and one of the lyrics was, I know every kid has the power to make the world a better place a better world, to plant a seed, to meet a need, because I believe in the power of me. And the song's called The Power of Me, and it's this ballad at how these, these kids are going to grow up um, and change the world. And as man-centered as that song is, um, what, what hit me is that even at a young age, our children are being taught this idea of human flourishing of humans re reaching a pinnacle, of humans doing what we should do at the best of our ability in the best possible world, we're teaching at a young age. That's what universities are like. That's what institutions like Google, those Michael Lawrence um, who preached this weekend said that the slogan of Google is to make the world a better place through technology. People want humanity to flourish. People want humans to, to, to reach the pinnacle of everything. And we don't just talk about it, we work towards it. Everybody thinks and labors towards that aspect. And this is really kind of the story of human history, isn't it? Isn't the story of human history just different people in different ways trying to flourish? Trying to find the best system of belief, the best system of government, the best system of economy? Everyone's fighting for what they think will lead to human flourishing. And specifically, it's not just flourishing as this ideal that sits out there. They want to see fruit. They want to see a system that produces a product that blesses everybody else, that is of an ultimate benefit to the world. And the problem is, is that as different views have come about, those different views often lead to wrong and sinful ideas. Uh, take Hitler, for example, okay? Hitler uh, didn't wake up one morning and just be like, you know what, I'm going to be the biggest jerk the world's ever known. I'm going to be this evil person that is going to get just... I just want to be the pinnacle of evil in society. That's not what Hitler did. Now, Hitler was evil, and Hitler was bad, but he genuinely thought that by ridding the world of Jews and by promoting an Aryan race, he was creating an environment that would let the world and humanity flourish. He genuinely thought that. He really did. In fact, I found a transcript of his first broadcast that went over to, to England and was translated, and in it he said this, it never had been my intention to wage war, but rather to build up a state with a new social order and the finest possible standard of culture. Every year that this war drags on is keeping me away from that work. So what Hitler, as flawed as it was, as evil as it was, what he wanted to do was not simply to wage war. What he wanted to do was to create what he thought would have been the best ecosystem for human flourishing. But we all know how that ended. It wasn't beneficial to humanity. It wasn't beneficial to humanity. The fruit it produced was not well-being or joy. It was death and evil. 
Today we see a new idea when it comes to flourishing, and thankfully a lot less violent idea of flourishing. And a school district in Arkansas has been presented with a plan um, that rids the school of any gender-specific language. And so they don't want their students to be called boys or girls or ladies or gentlemen. This, this is, this is real-life government. The proposal is that you no longer say any of those and you call these people little purple penguins. That's the proposal of it. And, like this, as silly as this sounds, no one woke up that morning and said, you know what? Purple penguins is the way to go. It's like, it's like, it's silly. People will laugh at it. And they're just like, this will be the biggest practical joke the world will ever see. A purple penguin school. Um, and this was a quote from one of the women uh, who, who supports the motion. And she says, the agenda we're promoting is to help all kids succeed. And so again, this idea isn't let's be weird, it's not let's be random, it's this idea we believe will cause humanity to flourish. And they think that by eliminating human gender and flattening human sexuality, that we will flourish. The problem is biblically, there's not much more crucial to our identity as humans as gender. That's what we knew. God made man and women before we knew creatives, before we knew A-type personalities, before we knew the baby boomers, we knew men and women. And so biblically, we look at this instance and we say, well, that's not flourishing humanity. That's flattening humanity. That's not a system to flourish. But, but this point aside, the big idea that culture, every culture, every economy, every professor you meet on campus today is after is how will you contribute to a society of human flourishing? How will you achieve a fruit that blesses the rest of humanity? And the Bible speaks of human flourishing. And if the Bible is the objective, the standard, and the authority we should follow, we should take, take it and heed its view of flourishing. And that's what we're going to look at today um, as Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of Mark. So let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, we thank you for the gospel of Mark, and we thank you that you, the ideals, the beliefs, the people, the stories of this book are not outdated and dead. Um, they are not irrelevant for a 21st century modern mind, but they are alive, they are active, they are relevant, and they are needed in our culture today. So Lord, we pray um, that this text labors on us faithfully. We pray that we respond rightly, but more importantly, Lord, we pray, um, as we have been looking at in the Gospel of Mark, we pray you present us with a picture of Jesus with great clarity that elicits a right response. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. It'll be up on the screens um, as well. And here, in the storyline of Mark, we see for the first time Jesus beginning to speak in parables. And the parable that we were going to look at that Caleb just read for us is probably one of the most popular parables. Almost just about everybody has heard this. Um, but what I want us to do is I want us to break this down biblically. Okay, I want us to strip away our Sunday school understanding of the parable of the sower or the parable of the soil, however you heard it. I want us to put aside all of our presuppositions about it. And I want us to view it biblically. And I want us to be thinking about this idea of human flourishing. Okay? Um, this is how it starts, Mark 4, 1 through 9. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them 
many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. That's what sowers do, they sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up, increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so if you've been in church for a while, if you've been to vacation Bible schools, or if your background is in Christianity, you're probably already starting to decode this parable. You're probably already starting to look at what Jesus is going to share with us in a little bit. But stop it, okay? Stop thinking about it right now. Because the problem is, is if we shift immediately to interpretation and we disregard this face value of this text, we're actually skipping over the miracle of the interpretation. Okay, so, so, so don't jump ahead of us. Let's look at what we just saw because Jesus just gave a parable. Jesus loved to speak in parables. And the word parable literally means a comparison. The, Jesus is taking a spiritual idea and he's comparing it to a real known reality. Jesus uses illustrations to make his point like a good speaker. Um, and these parables are the story aspect of Jesus' teaching. But what I want you to do is put yourself in the shoes of the crowd that is surrounding Jesus when this parable starts. Because one thing Mark has gone out of his way to tell us is the crowds, right? The first time we saw the crowds, Jesus couldn't get in the door. The second time we saw the crowds, they almost killed him because they crushed him. He's like, I can't go in there. It's so crowded, it'll crush me. And here we see the crowd is so intense that Jesus has to get into a boat and go out on the sea to preach to the crowd. So there's this huge crowd there, and they're not there to hear boring things. They're hoping for something fantastic, something mystical, something miraculous, something earth-shattering. They're hoping for this great bomb of wisdom, this thing that is just going to revolutionize the way they view their life. And so Jesus goes out in the boat, and the tension's rising as you know he's going out there. That moment where you're at a concert, and they, they turn down the lights, and you could hear your band starting to take the stage. And there's this tension of something's cool, something cool's about to happen. So he just goes out on the water. He stands up in all of his regal tunic. I imagine he wore a tunic. I imagine it was regal. Um, and he says, listen, a farmer went out to sow some seed. He threw some seed on the path. The birds ate it. Threw some seeds on the rocky soil. It grew and then it died. Threw some seeds among the weeds. Got choked out and died. Threw some seeds on good soil. It produced fruit. He who has an ear, let him hear. Mic drop. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what Jesus did here. That's the sum of the parable, okay? That's the, the whole audience, the crowd, the masses, that was it. That was the raw parable of Jesus. And, and I can tell you, for a primarily agrarian culture, which is what this Galilean region was, this was a pretty unimpressive message. Out of the whole of the Middle East, there was no land more fertile than the, than the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. There is no soil more better to be farmed. There are no better farmers. There are no better crops. There is no better soil. Jesus is telling them exactly what they already knew. And not only that, Jesus is a carpenter. He's not a farmer. 
right? Lit majors don't go over to MSU and start teaching agricultural classes. It doesn't happen. They farm things because they don't know what else to do and they're all losers. And we invent things because we're brilliant, okay? And so, so, so there's this disconnect here where, where Jesus, who has zero tactical farming knowledge, goes in to the most agrarian culture possible and he says, seeds grow in good soil. And that's the raw of Jesus' parable. And so you can imagine, they're hearing this, right? Because they're like, well, this is Jesus, right? So what can we gather from this? Well, well we know because we're, we're smart that, that raw, untamed dirt is dumb. Okay? It doesn't do anything. No farmer looks at a patch of raw dirt and says, that's doing what it's supposed to do. Even, on, uh, even, even dirt, when a tree is growing through it, is beneficial because it can create banks, it can create walls, but just dirt, plain dirt, barren dirt, is of no good to anyone. Is that what Jesus wants us to know? Dirt's dumb? Okay. And, and here Jesus is talking about the sower going out just seed, 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 seed. Just everywhere, seeds. It's like, is he, really, is he critiquing our sowing process? Because we're smarter than this carpenter, and we don't just like seed everything. We have some strategy to what we're doing. Like maybe, I mean, and, and realistically, who's this sower? Because only a quarter of his crops grew. Right? If, if, if us Galilean farmers only had a quarter of our crops grow, man, we'd be getting like, we'd be bringing in Greek beets. Right? We're not doing our job. A quarter, a quarter fruit is not good fruit. Or does Jesus just simply want us to know that good soil produces good fruit? We know that. And they're sitting there like, are, are, are we enlightened now? And I remember when I was a, a freshman in high school, one of my, or freshman in college, um, one of my friends was a, a poetry literature major. And so we had kind of a connected friend group, and so I would end up going to these poetry jams with a group of people. Um, I'm not a poet. Uh, I don't understand much poetry. And, well, I don't understand good poetry, let alone poetry at a poetry jam. Okay? And so what would happen is I would go to these poetry jams. They'd be in like the UC game room because nothing says poetry like people playing pool in the background. Um, and these people would, would just lay out these, these poems and these limericks and these poetic things that I don't know what they are. And I would just like, I would understand nothing. But you know what I would do? Mm, yeah. That's, that's deep right there. Like you get the head nod going on. Like I'm... Yeah, that's, that, resin, that bird is on a wall. The bird is on a wall! <laughs> that's deep. And I guarantee you the disciples are doing the same thing here, right? Because the disciples, like, they should know what Jesus is saying. And so they're hearing, like, they know the culture, right? The disciples live here. And they're working and fishing on the Sea of Galilee while Jesus is calling them. And they're just like, we think he's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good, Jesus. Yeah, keep it up. Let's go. Preach it. And we know the disciples didn't get it um, because look at what happens next in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Okay? And so like, like they're like, they're like sowing rocks, seeds, weeds. Mm, yeah. And then they get all alone and they're like, what does that mean? I have no idea what you just said, Jesus. And, and why are you explaining to farmers the obvious nature of farming? They know more than you. They're the experts on farming. They get what it takes to produce a crop. They are where all of our food comes from. And here Jesus is going to share with them the key to flourishing. 
the real key to flourishing. Because in the parable, it ended, we saw, we saw three scenes of dying crops. And we saw a scene of immense flourishing. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So much fruit, so much crop, that it would have been a, of a benefit to a large area of land. True flourishing. But what makes this story, which barely qualifies for a farmer's almanac, what makes this story biblical? More importantly, what makes it Christ-centered? Why is this in our Bible? Jesus answers them. Mark 4, 11 through 12. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so Jesus uses a phrase here, a phrase that Mark doesn't deal with a whole lot, but the rest of the gospel writers deal with a lot. He uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. And when it comes to human flourishing, there is nothing that can touch the kingdom of God. It's the top dog when it comes to the best economy, best government, best everything. The kingdom of God is where it's at. There's no Ebola. There's no Ferguson. There's no ISIS. There's no hate crimes. There's no racial issues. There's no rape. There's no sex slavery. There's no abortion. There's no human trafficking. There's no poverty. It is the perfect of all worlds, objectively, entirely, holistically perfect and best for humanity. The kingdom of God is the best and ultimate good we will ever experience as mortal and eventually immortal beings. It is the best. And in the kingdom of God, we have a gracious God ruling his people in perfect peace. And in the kingdom of God, it's where we will one day experience humanity as it was originally intended to be. And if we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God describes the creative account where everything was perfect, we were under and in the presence of God himself. You see, human flourishing is not something where we're, we're striving for something that's yet to come. It's something where we want to revert back to where we started. We started in the perfect presence of God, and we lost it. And so here Jesus is proclaiming this kingdom. And Jesus says, to you, it has been given to understand the kingdom of God. Right? And here the disciples probably have another like, self-assuring head nod like, oh yeah, it has. You know it. But we know it's only self-assurance because they don't get it yet. <laughs> like there are times in the gospel where you're just like, guys, um, I'm going to be killed and three days later I'm going to rise again. And then, like, all the gospel writers, um, even some of them who were apostles, are very, like, like, open with their dumbness because they're like, yeah, Jesus said this. He was referring to his death, burial, and resurrection, and we didn't get it until the death, burial, and resurrection. It's like, he just spelled it out for you. And, and so here, like, Jesus hasn't spelled anything out in perfect clarity, but here, Jesus says, to you it has been given, but we see the disciples don't yet get it. But... What is the secret? Because Jesus says, in this moment, what is the secret to understanding the kingdom of God? Because Jesus isn't saying, well, in the future, uh, after I die and rise again, then you'll see the kingdom of God. He's not saying that the secret to the kingdom of God is forthcoming. He's saying the kingdom of the secret of God is now. So what is the secret? Is it the knowledge of the scribes? Is it the group think of the crowds? 
Is it the exclusivity of the disciples? No. The secret to the kingdom of God, the secret to the world's most flourishing civilization is Jesus himself. Why will these men see something different in this parable? Jesus is about to decode it. Why are they going to see something different? Because Jesus is gracious to them. Why are they going to see something that the crowd didn't see? Because Jesus is going to spell it out for them. Why are they going to see in greater clarity the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is the key to the kingdom of God. Jesus is gracious to your hearts, and we will see that kingdom. But first, Jesus is going to describe that kingdom, but first we see a perplexing use um, of the prophet Isaiah back in chapter 4, verse um, uh, 12, actually. It says, So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So is Jesus saying here that he's hiding? That's a perplexing passage, isn't it? Is Jesus saying here that he's hiding the kingdom of God from people because Jesus does not desire to forgive them? So that's kind of what it sounds like, isn't it? But that's kind of at odds with the rest of the picture that we get of God in the Bible. When God self-disclosed himself to Moses, he says, I am God, merciful and abounding in steadfast love. That doesn't sound steadfastly loving. Jesus, just a passage before this, said that he has come to forgive all sins. So, so what's the difference here? Does Jesus want to forgive sins or does Jesus not want to forgive sins? Why is Jesus confusing these people at this current time and not allowing them to understand? Jesus specifically said, I have come not for the well, but for the sick. Jesus is in the business of forgiveness. So why did Jesus quote this passage? Because at this point in the story, Jesus is preaching to the masses and to the crowds, and the crowds might be with Jesus, but the crowds do not believe Jesus. And by quoting this passage, Jesus is saying that outside of a personal relationship with him, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness outside of the faith in Christ. Why doesn't the crowd get it? Because Jesus has not yet made himself known. But one day, on two cross beams and three nails, Jesus will make himself known to all. And then when all have seen, then they may be, be blessed to repent and believe and receive forgiveness. And then they will understand. But to believe in Christ without understanding the gospel, which had not yet happened, to believe in Christ without understanding the gospel is to miss Christ himself. To believe in Christ without understanding the gospel is to miss human flourishing. We cannot flourish apart from Christ. You can have success. You can make somewhat of a difference. But the greatest difference that will be made in our lives is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the key. Jesus is the key to the kingdom. And now, Jesus is going to share with the disciples the divine intention of his parable. And I use intention because he's not just giving a divine meaning, okay? It's not like Jesus gave this parable to all this group of dummies, and it's this mystical language that the disciples get out their decoder rings afterwards, and they gather together and put their minds together, and they find like, oh, well, this, these numbers and letters signify this, and now we've got this crazy thing. Okay, this is what was meant by the parable. But the disciples couldn't see it. 
You see, when Jesus spoke in parables, he used human language to describe spiritual problems. The problem with that is, is that we're incapable of seeing our own spiritual need. But Jesus, in his grace and mercy, is about to show the disciples what they were missing the whole time. This is true for all of us. Unless Jesus graciously shows you the spiritual state of your heart, there's no hope for flourishing. You're using the wrong kind of language. You won't see Jesus rightly unless Jesus graciously frames himself rightly for you. And so here we see the tale of four hearts. Heart one, we see Matthew or Mark 4, verses 13 through 14, or 13 through 15, excuse me. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? You're just like, okay, guys, I'll walk you through this. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones that are along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Okay? And so the first heart is a heart which is dead for Satan's good. A heart which is dead for Satan's good. See, Jesus equates, so here's the parable. He equates the seed with the word. The word is the gospel, okay? He equates the seed with the word, and he equates the soil to a human heart. And in this first example, we see the hardest heart. If you've been a Christian um, for any stretch of time, you maybe have ran into people who are this hard, who are completely cold, but not only cold, but hostile to the gospel. They don't even, they, they don't just disagree on like, Social grounds, I don't think that's right for me. They are hostile to you believing it. They do not want you to believe in it. It's not whatever you want to believe. As long as I don't believe it's you're wrong, you're dumb, and you're stupid. They're disinterested in Christianity because they feel like they have some higher sort of academic or cultural awareness that seems to unravel our archaic and primitive Christianity. And they walk around pridefully arrogant in what's going on, thinking that they have solved all the world's problems and they no longer have a need for any sort of religion. But did you see why Jesus said they didn't experience growth or flourishing? All right, it ended, no fruit. No roots, no fruit. They didn't flourish. Why? Do you notice what it said? Did it have to do with the hardness of the heart? Maybe. But ultimately, why? Because Satan stole away the seed. Because Satan stole away the seed. They're not hard because they're smarter than us. They're hard because Satan wishes for them to be hard. Because Satan, in all that he promises, is the enemy of flourishing. Satan isn't interested in your good. Satan isn't interested in human flourishing. Satan is interested in enslaving and killing and destroying. Peter describes him as your enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This heart that opposes Christianity isn't a higher enlightened heart that's been freed through knowledge. It's a, in a state of spiritual deadness. And they will never experience flourishing because Satan doesn't want them to. Sin will never bring you flourishing. Sin is never what's best for this world. These people aren't liberated in thought. They're enslaved in heart. These people are dead because of what Satan is doing. That's heart number one. Here's a tale of heart number two, verses 16 through 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
Over my seven years um, of being on staff at the church, this heart is unfortunately the most prevalent heart I've seen. We've seen it at GCF. I've seen it in youth group. I've seen it in, in Sovereign Hope's large meetings. This heart is a flash-in-the-pan heart. It booms and busts. And for better or for worse, these hearts are typically birthed on the retreats, which we're going on tomorrow. And that's because people get pulled out of the normal world, right? We t- last week, Jesus, we talked about discipleship in the mess. Why did Jesus call the disciples right before things got crazy, right before things got hairy, right before conflict really grew to a head? Because we, we, we are disciples, we are believers in this mess of belief and unbelief. We deal with people who respond well to the gospel. We deal with people who are hostile towards the gospel and retreats, pull people out of this mess and they hear the gospel and they play games and they see a popular gospel and they see all of their friends being ones who are Christians and they just blow up. I've seen this. I've seen people go on retreats and come back and they're getting like Jesus tattoos on their body, right? They're changing their Facebook profile pictures and their Twitter bios. They're tweeting, God's not dead. They're doing the whole bit and they, they love it. They're blowing up. They're all in. But when the first round of hardship comes, when the first tough decision manifests itself, they drop. They die. And I've seen it happen where people linger and their attendance slowly declines. And I've seen it happen where you have someone who's on fire for God, thinking they're doing everything right. And the very next day, you not only don't see them again, but you hear about them and you say, how could that person have shown the fruit they showed? completely dead. You see, the issue, though, when we look back at the story, it said the plants died because they were scorched in the sun. But the sun wasn't the issue, was it? We all live under the sun. We all live in the heat. What was the issue? It said they withered because they had no root. You see, the key to your perseverance in faith isn't that hardships are removed. It's that you have a root that endures through the hardships. And the only thing that separates you from heart number two is tomorrow. Every day, the only day that separates you from someone who falls away through persecution is tomorrow. Tomorrow will your root take hold. Tomorrow will your root stand firm. These hearts think that being a Christian will be popular and easy and they make an idol out of this comfortable, belonging nature rather than worshiping Christ for who he is. You should never think that Christianity is a step towards popularity. This isn't the popular group. If you want to be popular, go find another student group. But if you want to be with Christ, stay in this group. Look at what Jesus himself says in Luke 21, 16 through 19. Speaking to Christians, he gives us this great motivational picture. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Tomorrow matters. Will you believe tomorrow? Is your root long enough to last through tomorrow's trials? Those of you who have this second heart, you will not survive because you will not endure. And even though you made it further than heart number one, you still miss the flourishing. No fruit. 
You, you did nothing, you contributed nothing, you grew and you died. You died the same death as the unbeliever because fruit is the requirement of flourishing. Fruit is the picture of life. Fruit is the source of vitality. So I counsel you, be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Before you're with your friends, before you're with preaching or fellowship or prayer, be with Jesus. He will endure you. Jesus will sustain you. Heart number three, Mark 4, 18 through 19. And the others are the ones sown among the thorns. Thorns. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see, this is the gluttonous heart. This is the heart which desires Christ. It really does, but the problem is, is it desires everything else as well. These people allow Christ to take root initially, but they don't find it necessary to take anything else out of the garden. These are the people who claim to confess that Christ is their Savior. They look the part, they talk the part, they speak the part, and yet they do not alter the way in which they live. They desire the same things. They sin the same way. They do everything the same. And even though the plant may grow initially, the other desires will ultimately choke it out. And like the other three hearts, it missed flourishing. Produced no fruit. Sure, it grew. It may have grown among things. It may have looked like it was going to be okay. But ultimately, the things that were around it were the things that killed it. John describes this heart in 1 John 2, 16 through 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And this is kind of one of those passages that's like, well, God just hates fun. Right? Nothing in the world is from God. Blah, blah, blah. And we, we, we focus on that. Like, is God just opposed to fun? No! God's opposed to, quote, to, to things that don't last. God's opposed to things that rob your joy and kill your heart. Did you see that? Why is God lobbying for what he's lobbying for? So that you may endure forever. You see, God is after flourishing. God is after joy. God is after satisfaction. And what he's saying is that it's not found in the typical means you think it's found. It's found in me. I am the joy. I am the satisfaction. I am enough to satisfy. I am enough to grant purpose. I am enough to save. You see, ultimately, if our desires of our heart are not vetted through the cross of Christ, you will not produce fruit, and they will not bring you to flourish. They'll bring you to death. The last heart, Mark 4.20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You see, this last heart is the gospel-tilled heart. It's soft, it's fertile, it's tender. And in this heart, the gospel takes off. We see the stock and we see its health, but we've seen it before, right? Two out of the three before this, they grew. We saw the stock. We saw how it was growing. But the distinction of the gospel heart is that the rocks are removed, the weeds are dead, and it bears fruit. Not just some fruit, not just a little fruit, copious amounts of fruit. Enough fruit to make up for the other three quarters of the fruit that didn't bear fruit. It bears not only fruit enough for itself, but fruit sufficient enough for others. So naturally, the natural implication of this text is be this heart. Be this heart. But here's the problem. In this parable, we're dirt. 
Dirt has very little control over its dirtiness. Dirt is fundamentally incapable of tilling itself, of tending itself, of curing itself. You see, it's not that your heart is bad and you need to change it. It's not that, that, that some of you were made with hard hearts, some of you were made with rocky hearts, some of you were made with weedy hearts, some of you were made with pure hearts. It's that just like dirt, all of your hearts are unkempt and we need a gardener to take care of it. For those of you in here who are non-Christians, you may be frustrated with this desire of flourishing. And not just flourishing. Maybe flourishing is too far out for you. Maybe it's something as simple as belonging or satisfaction or purpose. And you see the world's view of flourishing and you find it lacking. Or maybe you see the Christian view of flourishing and you find it unattainable. And you're totally right on both accounts. The world is lacking. Christ is unobtainable. That's because outside of the great gardener, there's no hope for your fruit. And outside of Christ himself, there's no hope for your heart. The story isn't clean up your heart. The story is get a better gardener. You see, Christ came to till the soil of hardened, mixed unbelief. And he didn't come to do it with the traditional tools. He came to do it with the cross. He died for your sins. He died for your unbelief so that you would respond rightly because you have been made fertile through Christ. Christ has taken care of your deadness and Jesus wants you to flourish. And guess what? Flourishing isn't something outside of Christ. Flourishing is Christ himself. You were created to be in relationship with Christ. That's what the kingdom of God was. That's what the kingdom of God will be. That's what you need to be. So here's my word to you. For you non-Christians or for you people who are skeptical, four times in this text, Jesus uses the word hear. Hear. He who has ears, let him hear. First of all, place yourself in a place where you'll hear the word of God. Church on Sundays, GCF, the retreat that's coming up, community groups. You cannot expect to bear fruit if there's no seed. Kate, obvious farming trick. Seeds bear fruit. Nothing bears nothing. Put yourself in a position to hear it. Even if you say my heart is hard, even if you say, you know what, there's some broken stuff going on, but there are rocks. Even if there's issues, put yourself in a position to hear the word and trust the seed. But also, you can't expect the seed to grow unless the, the soil is taken care of. So pray that Christ will soften your heart. Pray that God, in violent tenderness, removes the rocks, hardens the soil, and tills the weeds. Pray that Jesus becomes the secret to, secret to your flourishing because in Jesus we find our greatest hope. In Jesus we find eternal life and the joy of worshiping before him forever. And for the Christian, I ask you, where's your fruit? Where is your fruit? To be Christian but not to pr produce fruit is to be no different than the, weeds that, 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 than the heart that had the weeds choked. To be Christian and bear no fruit is to be no different than the seeds that fell on rocky soil. To be Christian and bear no fruit is to be no different than the one who didn't believe at all. Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your affection for Jesus? Are you growing in your love of the brothers? Are you serving? Are you loving? Are you sharing? Are you giving? Are you reading? Are you praying? This is what makes us distinct. Our fruit. I'm not trying to be legalistic with what I'm saying here, but Jesus didn't say, be potatoes. Okay, If, if Jesus called us to be potatoes, things would be easy because no one would see we're different. We're under the ground. 
But Jesus called us to bear fruit, observable, real, tangible things. Why? Because he has altered us in a miraculous way. And it's not legalistic to say that Christians should produce fruit. It's legalistic to say that fruit saves. But it is deeply Christian to say, if you are a Christian, if Christ has tilled your heart and planted the gospel inside of it, that the natural proof of your salvation is the fruit of our word. And this is where the rubber meets the road. For you Christians, you have seen and you have been a victim of the greatest flourishing the world will ever know. A suffering perfect Savior come to set us right, to bring us back to the ultimate kingdom. Jesus is the true life, the true love, the true God, and in Him there's ultimate beauty and peace with God Himself. And by being a Christian, you have the capacity to produce fruit that is of an ultimate benefit to any society. You see, the problem with, with politics is that if you were to bring a democratic society and you were just to imp just take that and put it in, like you walk into the tiniest village in Africa and you're like, this is going to be a democratic republic. You walk into Asia and you find a middle tier village, you're like, this is going to be a democratic republic. The problem is, is that not every society is best fit to be ruled that way. The beauty of Christ is that in every culture, in every tongue, in every tribe, Christ is the ultimate best thing for all humanity. And we have have that message to share. We have the message of flourishing. We have the message of hope. So produce fruit and preach. One day, we experience the joy of the kingdom now, but one day that ultimate kingdom is coming. But that kingdom will not be inherited by those who have rejected the gospel. That kingdom will not be inherited by those who missed the gospel. That kingdom will be inherited by those who have believed and borne fruit out of the gospel. Will you be one who preaches that powerful word? And you see, here's our hope, that the realistic hope for this, not everyone will believe. Do not be downcast when in your inviting to GCF and to church and your personal evangelism at community group and at retreat and in your classes doesn't work. Because in the same way all of the soils, in the same way that three quarters of the soils did not produce fruit, we will also run into things where people do not respond and believe. But the fault was never in the seed, was it? It's not the seed's fault that the people didn't respond. The gospel is never at fault. The gospel is powerful, but we're dealing with hearts. But the irony is that the only thing that will break a hard heart that's rejecting the gospel is the gospel being preached to that hard heart. But here's the thing. The gospel will win. And through our faithful, continuous faith and obedience, we will be part of the winning side. We will bear fruit. And our fruit will be sufficient because Christ has promised it. St. Patrick, Patrick's Hospital in town has one of the four centers nationally um, which is qualified to treat Ebola patients. I was watching the news the other night, and, and Ebola is just, it's, it's just, it's spreading. It's dangerous. People are dying. They don't have a cure for it. And so they, they said, well, how do Missoulians think about this? And I was thinking, like, well, do I want Ebola to come into the town where my son is? Do I want Ebola to be here? And they were going through, and then one, like your typical Missoula lady, I told Sarah, I'm like, this is typical Missoula. She was standing there, like laid back, hair kind of just undone, like probably hand-hewn hand hemp clothing. <laughs> um, but she says this. She says, 
I want someone in it. I hope it gets used because if you have the capacity to help but choose not to, what good are you? You see, she gets flourishing. She gets it on a small, I guarantee you, 30 years from now, we won't be talking about Ebola like we're talking right now. This is a small blip on the radar of history. And she gets the idea of flourishing here. You spiritual creatures, how much more should we understand the help we have in this gospel? The greatest hope for this world isn't found in technology, culture, scientific advancements. The greatest hope for this world, the greatest hope for flourishing, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Bear fruit and preach it. This is our hope. This is our message. Jesus is our key. His message is the means. Be the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray for those in here um, who are one of the first three soils, hardened or rocky or weeded. God, we pray that you are merciful to them in removing their obstacles to faith. Lord, we pray that they respond and they see salvation not through fruit. They see salvation not through belonging, but they see salvation through Christ. And in turning to Christ, their sins are forgiven, Lord. Lord, for those of us who are Christian, may we be fully aware of the hope that we have, of the seed that has birthed a beautiful crop, and may we be people who contribute to something greater, who contribute to the greatest and most ultimate winning cause of the spread and expansion of the gospel. Lord, make us not content with being in the garden, but push us to be people who produce sufficient fruit inside the garden for the world, to the nations, through death and sword and famine and disease, because we have a root that holds a Christ who saved and a cross which plowed. Lord, bring us hope and joy which lasts because of the great sower who has saved our hearts. Pray in your name. Amen.